Um, but if you have uh, been with us, then you know that we are in our series called Jesus Appears. And in this series, we've been walking through these moments where Jesus appears in the life of many different people after his resurrection. We've really been exploring the question is, what did Jesus do after rising from the dead? What what is it that Jesus was doing? And, and we know that part of that was his appearances, his encounters with his disciples and others uh, after he rose from the dead. And so we started with the road to Emmaus, even though that was probably the second encounter that Jesus had. Uh, but we began with the road to Emmaus and the two disciples on that road and walking along with him. And then we turned to Mary Magdalene and her appearance at the tomb when Jesus encountered her uh, and she thought he was just the gardener wondering where they had taken his body. And then when Jesus says her not name, we, we are reminded of the intimate care that Jesus has even for us, that he would know our name. Uh, and then after Mary, we turned to the disciples in the locked room because they were full of so much fear uh, of what had happened to Jesus that it could possibly happen to them. And, and Jesus steps into the space that they're in and says to them, peace, peace be with you. Reminding us that Jesus rose from the dead and that peace has come from him and we don't have to live in that constant fear. And then we had Thomas and we had uh, Joey Grubbs come and present uh, the, the story of Thomas, doubting Thomas and how, how you can't have just fear and gratitude living in the same space. You have to turn to Jesus and know that and give thanks to him for what he has done. And then last week we were looking at Peter and Peter was this, this disciple that denied Jesus three times. He was full of shame for what had happened in that moment leading up to Jesus' death on the cross that he had denied the one that he had been with for the last three years. And yet, Jesus comes to him in this moment of tenderness and asks Peter three times, do you love me? To which Peter responds three times, yes, Lord, I love you. You know that I love you. And Jesus was showing him that in the three times that you denied me, I'm going to show you that you still love me and I still love you by asking the question to you three times. And so we are reminded of the depth of love that Christ has for us, even in our weakest and darkest moments, even in our greatest doubt, Christ still loves us. And so today we turn to uh, the very end of the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 21, verses 20 through 25. And this is where the disciple, uh, the, the apostle, the author of John ends his book. And so if you will read with me, this is John 21, verses 20 through 25. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? 
And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, you have given your word to us as a testimony and witness to who you are. From the very beginning to the very end, every word of scripture points to Jesus. And so Lord, it is my prayer today that as we look at this passage that we are also reminded and that we look to Jesus and that you would be glorified through this story and through the telling of your son and the work that he did for us. Lord, I pray that you would make little of me and very much of yourself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I kind of have this story. When I was in second grade, a new program was introduced into the school system. And you might have heard of it, I don't know, but it was called the Accelerated Reader Program. And this program was an opportunity for teachers to kind of evaluate where students were on their reading level and, and how well that they retained what it was that they were reading. Uh, but it was also an opportunity for students to really challenge themselves to read books, to read uh, harder books, and, and to score points when they would take the quizzes on these books. Uh, and then you would get your, your quiz grades back and you would get a certain amount of points for how well that you did on that quiz. And then once you accumulated enough points, you could turn those points in for prizes. Well, one of the earliest memories that I have of actually comparing myself to another person was actually during this accelerated reader program. I was in second grade and there was another classmate of mine that uh, was also determined to be the the highest score in the Accelerated Reader Program. And so we were constantly fighting each other on who could read the most books, who could read the most um, uh, above our grade level books. So like this is, we're in second grade and we're fighting uh, and competing by reading high school level books because books also, you got more points for reading harder books, for books that are above your grade level. and so. We wanted to, to be the very best. We wanted to, to, to compete in this, in this area. But I can remember, I remember for the first time that this became an area in my life where I started comparing myself based off of my abilities, my skills, my intelligence. And I was comparing myself to another student. And ultimately what it led to was I could never best this other student. Um, she was very smart, very intelligent. Uh, she read at a much higher grade level than I was reading at. And even in second grade, I was reading at a high school level and she was reading at a college level. There was just no way I could, I could get there. But I remember thinking, 
I'll never be as smart or as good because I can't catch up or pass or surpass her abilities. And, and as I responded to that in, in my mind and in my heart, I also could look out and, and perceive whether it was true or not that teachers would give her more attention because she was smarter, she was more intelligent, she read at a higher level. I started to fall, even in second grade, into this, into this what I like to call the comparison trap. And, and I started to think that, that at that age, that I, was, I became so obsessed and so concerned about my grades, my ability in the classroom, who was I scoring better than, was I getting the highest test grades, because as soon as second grade was over, she was no longer in my classes. Praise God. Now I could be the smartest one. Now I could be the best. I would compare myself to everybody else knowing that they were less than me. And then in high school, I had a hiccup in my sophomore year. I hate to admit, but I ended up with two Ds and two Cs. It's the worst I had ever done in a classroom experience. I'd never been less than a straight-A student. And so to, to come out of, of sophomore year with two Ds and two Cs, I was like, how do I make up for this? So I just went to the grind and I worked harder and, and I started to compare myself again to all the other classmates and all the other students. And I didn't drop anything below an A the rest of my high school career, but I still had the weight of, you had two Ds and two Cs compared to the valedictorian who made straight A's his entire year in high school. You're just not good enough. I kept falling into that comparison trap, and it wasn't actually until my junior year of college that, that the Lord broke that off. It had to be a work of the Lord, because I wasn't going to give it up. But the Lord broke off that, that comparison trap by giving me my first B in college. And I was like, oh, it doesn't all hinder on grades. It doesn't matter about being the best or actually even comparing yourself to anyone else. It's about what you're able to do and accomplish when you've put your best foot forward. And so that comparison trap was, was broken off for school and for grades. And so I ended up finishing college and going through uh, seminary without having to think about or compare myself to anyone else. But then I graduated, and I ended up in ministry contexts. And if you didn't know that ministry is just a place begging for yourself to compare yourself to someone else, then I just ask that you go try something in ministry and realize how much you want to compare everything you do to the church down the street, to the youth group down the street. So I started in youth ministry and I had a good youth group. Like, it was, it was pretty good. Like, I loved it. I thought we were doing really well. I thought that I was killing it. And then I looked down the street, and there's this other church that has just got, like, 100 kids showing up to every youth group. They are just doing the best to get all these kids in. And I was like, how do I, how? Like, I've got 40. I'm thankful for my 40, but, but I want 100. Like, what am I doing wrong? Like, I feel like I've got, I've got more passion than they do. I feel like, like 
I have more heart than the other youth pastor. I feel like I have this desire to, that, they, that these kids would know the gospel more than that other youth pastor. Like I thought that, that I had what it took and I had, it, had just the right formula to really disciple students. And I was like, God, why aren't you honoring that? Like, come on, like I'm doing everything I can. Why is, what's up? Why is that church getting all the kids and, and I'm not? And, and here's the danger in those questions. It's, it's dangerous because it, it will lead you down a path in ministry for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, I probably could have had 100 kids, 200 kids in my youth group on a Sunday night, but I wasn't going to be the youth pastor that offered a pair of rare Nike sneakers if all the kids brought one friend to youth group with them and then we were going to raffle them off. I didn't want to be the youth pastor that, that was giving away the free iPad just to encourage more kids to show up. And you think I'm kidding, but that's actually something that happened in the community that I was in. These places were, were using gift giving and, and raffles as, as means of getting kids in the door which maybe not necessarily is a bad thing, but the question is, but once you got them through the door, were they actually engaging in faith? Were they engaging in the scriptures? Were they understanding what it meant to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? Now I'm going to pause at that statement and not judge what was happening in those churches on Sunday night with those youth groups. But I knew that I had to resist to compare. I had to resist everything in me to not put myself up against another youth group. I had to trust that the work that I was doing for the kingdom of God was the work that God set aside for me. And that whatever work that they were doing, God set aside for them. And so I had to walk in this, in this place, this, and I really was. I had to tiptoe because I knew how easy it would have been for me to just step off and end up questioning whether or not I was doing a good job because my youth group wasn't as big as somebody else's. And so for us here at FPC, I also want to remind us, I got to remind myself that, that we cannot compare ourselves as a church to another church down the road. I have to remind myself that who we exist as a church here in Griffin is completely different than another church down the street. We aren't trying to be like another church. We're simply trying to be our church, the church that God placed here to do whatever work that God wants us to accomplish. And so we're talking about this, this comparison trap. And so the question too is for you, like how, how often have you found yourself in this, in this place of comparison? We've all done it. We've all been there. We've all been in this place where we want to compare ourselves to someone else, even if it's just a minuscule amount. We've all been in that place of comparison, asking ourselves the question, well, am I better? Am I worse? Am I doing a good job? Am I doing a bad job? Why do they have this and I don't? Why is the grass greener on the other side? How do I keep up with the Joneses? These are all questions ultimately of comparison. 
am I, am I doing, <laughs> we have a Jones. <laughs> uh, am I doing the work? Am I, am I putting in that workplace of comparison, constantly looking to somebody else or another family or another group and asking the question is, is how do I measure up? But the thing is, when we ask that question, the question really is, what are we comparing our measurement to? Are we measuring ourselves against somebody else, or is there something greater that we should be using as our measuring stick? And so as we think about this this morning, we have to turn to this passage, and we see this conversation with, with Peter and with Jesus, and it's it's spoken about in, in, our, in our bulletin today as, as the encounter with the beloved disciple. And, and it is really an encounter with the beloved disciple, but it's a conversation that happens between Jesus and Peter. And so if we recall, and I kind of talked about this already, but we talked about how Peter uh, is, is with Jesus and they're having this conversation. After Peter had denied Jesus three times, Jesus is tender, tenderly loving him out of his shame and into a place of security in Christ. He says, Peter, I know you denied me three times, but do you still love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And he asked that question three times, and Peter finally just breaks down. He's like, you know, Lord, that I love you. And Jesus is like, I know you do. I want you to take care of my sheep. I want you to tend to the flock. I want you to do what it is that I have called you to do. And then he follows it up by saying, follow me. He ends his conversation with Peter in that place. He says, then follow me. Follow me, Peter. Wherever it is that I go, I want you to follow me. All right. And so this is where we are today. We end up in our passage this morning. And Peter turns and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Now, I have to imagine for a second that Peter is walking along the shore with Jesus and he catches in the corner of his eye that somebody else is walking down the shore like slowly with them, just, just keeping enough space between them that he's not like, you know, right up close and personal, but but, you know, a far enough back, but they're walking down and the beloved disciple is just walking, keeping, keeping the same pace, keeping his distance. But he's, but he's there. All along, he's there following in the footsteps of Peter and Jesus. And we don't really know how long they were walking on the shore or, or how long that he's been following. We really don't even know why. But we know that he was following and that he was, he was there and Peter Peter sees him, and Peter is just like, you got to be kidding me. This guy's following us. Is he listening to our conversation? I, at least I would be. I mean, I can't imagine. Have you ever been in that situation where you're having a conversation with someone, but there's somebody else just, just following you along, and you're like, are they listening to everything we're saying? Do I need to be quieter? I don't want anyone to know what we're talking about. And it might be really easy for us to think that, that the beloved disciple, who is John, by the way, I'm going to go ahead and just, so I don't have to keep saying that, the beloved disciple is John, that we don't have to keep, we don't have to wonder whether or not John was rude for following during a private conversation. 
I actually think that it's the complete opposite. I think that, that the reason that John was following was simply that he wanted to be near. He didn't want to be near necessarily to Peter, but he wanted to be near to Jesus. I thought about this passage when I was working on this. In Matthew 8, chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says this to a man that came up to him. A scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, Jesus was describing to this scribe the cost of what it would mean to follow him. It would mean like literally giving up everything. Scribes were wealthy. They had wonderful homes to live in. And Jesus like, if you follow me, you will have to give all of that up. And so there's this cost to discipleship of following. And, and here's the thing. John knew the cost. He'd already decided that he was willing to pay it. And he's already lost Jesus once. And here he is in front of him. He's not going to let it happen again. He's going to walk and be as close to Christ as it would allow. During the conversation with Peter, John wanted to follow. When, when it, it's a quite clear echo that when Jesus said to Peter, follow me. And then we turn the page and we see that John is following Jesus. While he talks to Peter, we understand that, that John wants to be close to Christ. And I really have to ask myself the real question, do I want to follow Jesus that closely? A am I willing to, to do whatever it takes to just walk as close to him as possible, even in the most dangerous moments of life? Am I willing to follow him? Because Jesus is always leading somewhere. And John had the innate desire to follow him where he led. And so I have, to, I have to ask myself and I have to ask us, do we have the innate desire that John had to walk and follow Christ wherever he is leading? Even as Jesus is talking to Peter. And it's not necessarily about whether John was listening or not. That's completely irrelevant to the story. It is simply that he was following because he wasn't going to let Christ get too far ahead of him again. And so Peter notices John following. And in verse uh, 21, we read that he says, And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about this man? <laughs> Peter has always been kind of the quick-tempered one, the one to jump to conclusions. He's the one that, that jumped to cut off a man's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's this Peter. And so he's probably irked that John is following closely behind them while he's trying to have a conversation with Jesus. And so he turns to Jesus. He says, Jesus, John is following us. What about him? What's going on with him? What's going to happen to him? What are your plans for him? You see, we have to remember that just before this passage, in the same context where Jesus is asking Peter whether he loves him, he also says to Peter, this is how you are going to die and glorify me. 
Jesus straight up tells Peter, you are going to suffer to reveal my glory. You're going to be martyred for your faith. And so I think that when Peter asks the question of Jesus, what about him? What about John? What he's really asking is, will John suffer like me? Will his ministry be like mine? What's your plan for him? How are you going to use that man versus how you're going to use me? All of these questions are wrapped up in comparison. Is, is Peter going to be the better apostle? Is he going to be the better disciple? Is he going to have to suffer more or less than John? Is he going to have a better ministry or a worse ministry than John? Is he going to go further than John or not? Is he going to live longer than John or is he going to die before John? Peter wants to know all of these questions. He wants to know because, because honestly in the human heart, there's this part of us that, that wants to really be better. We want to be better than the person sitting next to us. We want that when we play the comparison game, we want to be able to calculate it where we come out on top. And here's Peter just talking with Jesus after just being asked by Jesus whether or not he loves him and whether or not actually he loves him more than these, meaning maybe those other disciples that are just sitting down on the shore. Do you love me more than them? Because if you love me more than them, you're not going to compare yourself to them. And yet here, Peter is comparing himself to John, asking these questions, wondering whether or not Peter is going to end up better than John. I mean, and can we really blame him? The oldest sin in the Bible that led to death, to murder, was a comparison trap. Cain kills Abel because he compared his offering to his brothers. And it was out of jealousy in that comparison that he murdered Abel. We get so caught up in comparing ourselves to others, we quickly slip down the steep slope toward our own undoing. Comparison does not ever, ever lead to life. Comparison only leads to death. It only leads to us finding fault, either with us or with someone else. It leads to judgment. It leads to control. It leads to jealousy and to pride. And we've all done it. I've done it. I've done it so many times. I've done it in the last week. I've compared myself to someone else. It robs us of the joy that God would have us in a life with him, but instead we try to take it away and put it in a compared life to others. And so what is it that Jesus says to Peter in verse 22? What does it matter? What does it matter, Peter, if I let him live until I return? What does it matter to you? Peter, I have a plan for your life. Jesus keeps coming back to Peter. He's like, Peter, I have a plan for your life. And whatever plan I have for your life is good. And it is for your good. And it will be for my glory. And in the same way, Peter, I have a plan for John's life. 
And it is good. And it is for His good. And for my glory. You see, the reality and the truth is that oftentimes we really are more like Peter than John. John just wanted to follow Jesus at all costs. He didn't care about what he looked like or or what would come of it if he followed him, even if he followed him to death. But more likely we have Peter spirits where we constantly just want to follow Jesus, but also while we're following him, we want to know how our following compares to the person next to us. We want to concern ourselves about whether or not our suffering is the cause of something good or cause of something bad in our lives. We want to know if, if we're suffering more because we're going to get a better reward or are we suffering more because we're not doing as great. Is, is suffering an indicator of, of how much God loves us? Does God love John more because John suffered less than Peter? But none of that could be further from the truth. I've fallen into that trap so many times. I'm, I'm a very, very introspective person. I love to look inwards and ask all these questions about whether or not what I'm going through is, is a result of God not loving me. Where is his goodness in that? Recently, I can remember a time where I was going through this, this time of suffering and endurance and ministry where I thought that I was doing everything I could to, to, to just persevere, but but I knew that when I went home at night, all I could think about was, God, why am I suffering so much? Why do I have to endure so much? Do I not want to glorify you more than them? Do I not want your name to be made greater in this community than those that are persecuting me? Do I not have a deeper care for the hearts and souls of students than they do? Why do I have to suffer when my enemies get off? I can't tell you how often I turn to Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? I think, too, that was Peter's cry of his heart as he sat there with Jesus walking along the shore with John following in the back. He probably wondered, why do I have to suffer and he doesn't? Do I not want your name glorified as much as him and yet you have this for me in my life but you don't have it for him in his life? And so for me, I had to remember that suffering isn't an indicator of whether or not God loves you or not. It is simply something that Jesus said we will all have to endure because we have called upon his name. To be a follower of Christ is synonymous with suffering. And so here, Peter is getting to the point with Jesus. As Jesus reveals to him, you are going to suffer and it doesn't matter what I choose to do for John. It doesn't matter. And in verse 23, it's kind of crazy how these situations happen and it's actually a real life scenario. When we fall into the comparison trap and we want to hurt others, we create rumors and gossip about that person. 
And in the same manner in this passage, we see how, how this rumor spread that John was never going to die. And yet that's never what Jesus said. The words of Christ were twisted in order to serve a purpose. In the same way that the words of God were twisted when Cain killed Abel. Cain took what he heard from God and not realizing that what God was getting at is there's a heart problem. It's not an issue with your sacrifice. It's an issue with your heart. But Cain took that to mean my brother's sacrifice is better than mine. My sacrifice will never live up. So I've got to kill him so I have the best sacrifice. We twist words. We become gossips and slanderers when we compare to others. But we have to catch ourselves. To do good ministry means we have to catch ourselves in those moments. To be on guard at all times. To not let the trap of comparison overtake us. And then finally, this passage concludes with us seeing what it is the difference between Peter's ministry and John's ministry really was. Peter went to be a church leader and a church planter. He went to lead the church throughout all of Asia and Rome. Without Peter's ministry, the church might not have bloomed as it did. But John wasn't a church planter. John was a writer. And what John gave us was the recorded history through the Gospels and through his letters and through a revelation. John's words live on in Scripture as a means to encourage believers. And so what we see is that John's gospel serves in his ministry to encourage us today, but just as much as Peter's ministry led to where we are as well. They both glorified God. They both led to where we are today. And so what does that really mean for us I think it really means, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, what we learn in today's passage and in that verse is that from before time even began, God knew us. And even before then, he created for us good works that we were to walk in. Not works of our own doing, not works of our flesh, but his works. Works of God, for God, that would glorify God. And if we were created for those works, then we also can be assured that he will carry them out in us and through us. And so there is no reason for us to be like Peter, falling into that trap of comparing our ministries to our brothers' or sisters' ministries. Because whatever work God created for us, we will accomplish. And whatever work that God created for our brother or sister, they too will accomplish. And whatever route that looks like along the way shouldn't matter. Because at the end of the day, who receives the glory? God. And so with that established truth, we can know that God is at work in every one of us that have called upon the name of Jesus, whether our lives and ministries and trajectories look like Peter's marked with suffering 
or whether they look like John's, who lived a life full in a space to write, to reveal what it was that God would want to reveal through him. I'm reminded as well of Peter's suffering in his own letter that he wrote. He wrote about his suffering and how he did suffer for the kingdom of God. But both were necessary for the revealing of God's kingdom in our world and to those around us. And so when we fail to fall into the comparison trap, when we resist the comparison trap, when we don't give in to the desire to compare ourselves to others, we can become a place where we share in each other's joys and triumphs and we encourage each other in moments of suffering. We become a church that people want to be a part of, that would reach out to the world and bring the outsider in to change our community for good and for the kingdom that God would want to reveal through us in Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made for both Peter and for John and for me and for you. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, we are so thankful for your goodness and your grace. We're thankful that regardless of the sufferings we have or the joys we experience, neither are an indicator of the love that you have for us, but you have called each and every one of us into a life lived in ministry to the glory of you and your name through the power of your Holy Spirit. Jesus, use us as you use Peter and use us as you use John. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.